1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not do when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that, through, that though judged in the flesh the same way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Mark. Thank you, Mark. May God bless the reading of his word. Have a seat. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. In case anybody uh, is interested in knowing, uh, Marilyn Hintz likes the room temperature and doesn't want it to change. So let's let her have it after the sermon. Can't make everybody happy, okay? Anybody in church leadership knows you can't make everybody happy all the time. We love Marilyn. In 1 Peter, we've been talking about suffering a lot, and uh, today is going to be no, no exception. This, this letter is written to Christians who are suffering. And, and I want to open up your mind today to the reality that, with very few exceptions, there's nothing that we can do in life that, that is good, very few things that we can do that are good that doesn't involve some form of suffering, right? I mean, by and large, the good things that we accomplish in this life are not brought about through ease and comfort. So, for example, education. Education, uh, you know, we have a Christian school and any, you know, ninth grader that's taking or 10th grader that's taking geometry can tell you that there's suffering involved there, right? Remember proofs, if you ever took geometry? Yeah, they're going through that right now. They're suffering, right? Um, I remember my, uh, uh, I, I couldn't believe it, my freshman year of college, I had to take uh, freshman physics, physics 152, and um, it was incredible. I, the material was coming so fast and furious that you could barely grasp the concepts and, and take a quiz or something before they're on to the next thing, and it was like whatever pace we had in high school was gone, you know, and here I'm looking around, I was not one of these kids, by the way, but I'm looking around at a bunch of students that were used to getting straight A's in high school, and if you got through Physics 152 in freshman engineering at Purdue University with a C, you nailed it, and it was deflating for some. They left the program, whatever, and it wasn't just physics, it's calculus and all the other things they're throwing at you all at once, and I came to realize why they were throwing all this stuff at us at the same time, and that was to teach us, you better get your study skills up to par 
if you're gonna make it through this program. And they wanted to let us know that on day one. And they did. And that, that, uh, that suffering paid off later in the program. Same thing with physical abilities, right? Nobody, if you've been sitting on the couch, you know, uh, with your feet up uh, every night for the last year, you're not gonna go out tomorrow and run a marathon, right? It's just not gonna happen. It, those, that's something that, that requires working out and maintaining a healthy diet and suffering through mile after mile after mile in preparation for being ready to run a marathon. And it's the same thing with any kind of skills or artistic endeavors. These things all require us to go through, the, to, to put in the time necessary to, to do the skill. I think of military conflict. Military conflict. I've been re- recently re-watching bits of the uh, HBO series Band of Brothers uh, about um, 101st Airborne, Easy Company, and World War II. And, and in that... In that uh, in that miniseries, the, the, the captain that's putting the, the company through basic training, he's a hard man. He is challenging them. He is making it life for them more difficult than any other company, and he's really pushing them and pushing them, and they hate his guts for it until they get on the battlefield, until they get on the battlefield, and their company excels in battle because uh, they suffered in basic training. Relationships, you, anything that we do, many of the things that we do in this life that, that have any meaning or substance requires us to suffer to get to where we need to go. In this passage today, we're gonna be faced with a grim reality and, and, and I'm not happy. It's not necessarily a happy thing from a human standpoint for me to preach this sermon because it's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt all of us to hear the realities that we need to hear this morning. The question on the table is this, how can I be sure that I am following the way of Jesus Christ? You see, in in the church today, in in the United States of America in 2021, church can oftentimes feel like a whole bunch of people getting together in a big room like we are and holding hands and singing songs that are all happy and nice and, and encouraging, and those are all good things, without facing the reality that this text is inviting us to face this morning And we need to face it head on. So let's just get into the text. Number one, there's six points. The first point is this. The way of Jesus Christ is the way of suffering in our fight against sin. The way of Jesus Christ is the way of suffering. Not just for any reason, but suffering in our fight against sin. Look at verses one and two. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, let's just take that phrase there. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Let's take that, take that phrase and think about it for just a minute because Bible scholars basically, I'm oversimplifying, but I, I, I don't have time to go through every possibility, but Bible scholars have boiled it down to two possibilities of what's in view here, what Peter has in view when he says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's either talking about Christians, who have, people who have come to Christ, or it's talking about Jesus himself. And so, there's, if, so let me just explain it this way. If, 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 this, if that phrase is talking about people who have come to Christ, 
then this is what it means. If a person has turned away from sin to the point that they are now suffering in their fight against it, then that is a clear indicator that they have left the way of living for self and are now living in the way of Jesus Christ. In other words, how can you tell if somebody's a genuine Christian because they're willing to suffer for for what God has said, what Jesus has said, to follow Jesus in his way? But there's a second possibility, and and that's talking about, and that is if this phrase, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, is talking about Jesus. If that's true, then this phrase is probably a reference back to 1 Peter 3.18, which says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. So the thinking there is that since Jesus suffered and died, and even died to conquer sin, we should equip ourselves, we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, here's the good part. The good part is whether that phrase is, and it's hard to interpret, but whether that phrase is is talking about Christians, people who have come to Christ, or it's talking about Jesus himself, it doesn't really change the overall meaning of the passage as a whole. The meaning of the passage as a whole, which is that because since, since Christ suffered for sin in the flesh, you know, he didn't suffer against sin, he was sinless, but he suffered and paid the penalty for our sin, that we need to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking and be ready to suffer against sin in our own life. Let's talk about that, that verb that is translated in your English Bibles, arm yourself. That's an interesting verb. It's the only time that verb is used in the New Testament. It's the only time. It has the idea of equipping oneself for action, kind of like in a military way, and that's why I think the ESV chose to use the, use the word arm yourself. It's a very interesting word. It's like you're going to battle, right? As I taught last week, our idea of the heart in 20, 21st century United States of America, Western culture, whatever, our idea when we say follow your heart, we're typically talking about our feelings. But remember, as I shared last week, in Peter's day, the heart was the seat of the mind, our knowledge, the will, our decision-making, our volition, whatever, and our emotion, the way we feel about things. And remember, 1 Peter 3.15, last week we covered this, said this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, And we talked about how that meant that we are, in effect, to let Jesus Christ sit on the throne of our heart and direct us in how we we live out our life to our, for example, spouse or to our children or how do we work for our employer or how do we relate to government, how do we relate to ourselves, and so on and so forth. He is the one who is our, he reigns over us. He's our ruler. We think the way we, I'm sorry, the way we think informs the decisions that we make and it informs the way we feel about things. And so we are to arm ourselves with the following way of thinking. Number one, as we come to Christ and depart our former life, those sins that we have bought into and those sins that we've been practicing for our lives, those things are not going to go quietly into the night. We're going to have to fight against them. I know that there's a brand of Christianity out there. They call themselves Christians. 
There is a brand of Christianity out there, quote unquote, who says, God, I've come to you and you've promised me health, wealth, and prosperity. And so he's just gonna take all my sins away. He will forgive your sins. That is absolutely true. But we, he has given us the tools that we need to resist the power of sin, to break free from the power of sin, but we must do the work. So that's the first way we have to arm ourselves. These sins in our lives that we've been practicing are not gonna go quietly. We're going to have to fight and suffer to root them out of our lives. And secondly, we have to know that the primary weapon that we have, remember, our thinking makes a difference on the decisions that we make, makes a difference on how we feel about things. We have to arm ourselves with the thinking that this battle is gonna be difficult and it's gonna be hard and we gotta get it through our thick skulls that the way of Christ is not gonna be easy. Nothing good ever is. Many people, I've, it's been my observation, many people wanna say with their words that they wanna live for Christ. Maybe they do this because they wanna avoid hell. Maybe they wanna do this because they wanna fit into a particular group of people, whatever. But in practice, as you examine their lives and look at them, you could never tell. We think that coming to Christ will be easy. Remember, Jesus himself told us to count the costs, right? To count the costs of coming to him. We think, well, well, I'm gonna throw myself under the bus here. You know, I'm, I'm a middle-aged man now, and and. It's a good idea for middle-aged men like me to go to the doctor about once a year. I'm, I'm behind, admittedly, in going to see the doctor. But I go to the doctor, and, and let's just say hypothetically, I go to the doctor with a knee problem. What's the first thing that the doctor, well, it's not even the doctor, it's the doctor's assistant. What does that person do to me when I walk through the door and check in? They check my weight, and they check my height and they write it down. And then I go into this little room that has paper to sit on. You, you know this, Matt, Dr. Matt knows this. And I sit on the paper and I wait for the doctor to come in and I tell him about my knee problem and he tells me about my weight problem. And I say, I came in here because I have a knee problem. And he says, I know, I'm talking to you about your knee problem right now. Your knee problem is connected to your weight problem. Now, when I went in to see the doctor, this is what I wanted. I wanted a pill. I wanted a shot. I wanted him to do the Mr. Miyagi thing and put his hand on my knee and fix it, right? I wanted to walk out of there pain-free. And he's saying, I'm telling you how to be pain-free. Drop some weight. It's not what I want to hear. It's hard. I'm going to have to suffer to lose weight. I'm going to have to stop eating the things that I like, sugar. And I'm going to have to do, start doing the things that I hate exercise. Folks, if we're not careful, I, I imagine that the doctors in the room see about uh, 100 patients like that a day. I don't know how many patients the doctor sees in a day, maybe 30, I don't know, in a day. It's the same story. And if we're not careful as Christians, we may get confused and think that the way of Christ is the way of comfort and ease. It's the way of health, wealth, and prosperity, as some, as some preachers say. It is not. 
This text makes that clear. When we come to Christ as sinners, we are addicted to ourselves and we are addicted to the sins that we came to Christ with. Yes, he has liberated us from our sins, but we are encouraged and, and, and instructed to do battle with and, and given the power to break free from their, those sins, but we gotta do the battle. We gotta, do the, we gotta get in the fight. And it starts by understanding what God has said and then after we get that knowledge in our mind to begin to put that into our decision-making and, and to let it, let it impact our emotions, our affections. And so we got to understand that Jesus, though he was the creator of the universe, he lived a self-disciplined life of self-sacrifice for the benefit of the other, for, uh, to the, for the benefit of others. To this morning, I'm talking to you and I. Namely, he laid down his life to make payment for our sin. And so, brothers and sisters, let's not leave here today being a just-give-me-a-pill Christian, right? Just give me a Bible, pastor, just give me a Bible verse to fix this situation that I am. I'm in. Give me a prayer to whisper to fix the situation that I'm in. You don't get it. You've got to live out the way of Christ. And often that means it's gonna be hard, it's gonna take practice, it's gonna be challenging. You are gonna have to suffer through it. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and he said in that sermon, one of the most terrifying verses of Scripture that still you know, causes me a shudder when I think about it. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Brothers and sisters, we are not here to pray a sinner's prayer and then get on cruise control to the day of death. That's not why we're here. We're here, we've been liberated from our sin, now we gotta live like it. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, what many people refer to as the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm just gonna read to you a little bit about what our... our the people that came before us, what they had to endure. I'm gonna pick it up in verse 32 and go all the way into chapter 12. But just listen to these words and, and listen to the things. These are words of tremendous glory brought about by tremendous sacrifice, suffering, and discipline. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They, were, they went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, 
of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that, set, that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who have disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems rather painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weakened knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though it was sought with tears. In your struggle against sin, brothers and sisters, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I know this is not a popular message, but it is the truth. The way of Jesus Christ is the way of suffering against your sin. The next points will go quickly. The, we see in verse three, the time to join the resistance is now. This is Peter saying, all right, enough already. You've had enough of this living the way that the Gentiles do. It's time to stop. It's time to turn around. It's time to live differently. Look what he says. Verse three, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles wanna do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. There's this crazy idea in the church today, and I hear people utter these words, doesn't God just want me to be happy? 
In the life to come, yes, he does. But while sin remains and we remain on the earth, what he wants for us most of all is to be holy. And, and there's gonna be times when that's gonna mean happiness and that's gonna mean time, times when it's gonna mean suffering and struggle, discipline and sacrifice. And so it's time to resist sensuality. There's a whole generation that we're living in right now that has convinced itself that the way to live properly is by our feelings alone. Whatever I feel I am, whoever I feel I am, whatever I feel I am, that's what I am, and you can't tell me any different. That's not the way we live. It's time to resist lust. It's time to resist drunkenness, meaning using substances to, to, to alter your thinking. You know, to, to let down your inhibitions, to, uh, you know, listen, can I, can I be honest with you? I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I'm not. I've got an average IQ, I think. And so what I need most of all is to stay sharp in my thinking. And I don't do that by dulling it with substances or letting the, the inner person of my dark heart out by shutting off my thinking and just letting it roam free. No. Uh, the resistance against orgies. I looked this up in the lexicon. It means excessive feasting, you know, just excess. And it's kind of related to the next thing, which is the resistance against drinking parties. Just, just getting together and letting the senses run wild, eating whatever you want, drinking whatever you want, and then doing whatever you want in the passions of your flesh. And then he caps this off with this wanton idolatries, elevating other things besides God to number one in our lives and just being happy to do so. It, I'm using this, it's time to join the resistance language intentionally. It, it's time to stop messing around here. It's time to get a little bit militaristic and go you know, a little medieval on our sin, folks. It's killing us and it's blemishing our witness to the lost world that's all around us that is buying into this garbage. We need to be Different, we're gonna talk about that in a minute. Jesus used stark language to talk about these things. Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What I'm most concerned about today is that if you're here and you have become comfortable in your sin, be afraid. If you have become comfortable in your sin, it's time to wake up and understand what you're doing is a violation of what God has placed you here to do. It's a violation of his word, and you need to change. You need to grow. You need to put that off, to be renewed in the thinking of your mind and put on godly behavior. One of the most scary things about sin uh, that, that the Bible just seems to talk about is that as we go down, as we if, if, if me standing here is standing in the center of God's will and then I'm heading off into my sin, as I head off into my sin, my mind, my eyes become darkened to the truth of God's word. And one of you comes alongside of me and says, let me help you. Let me, let me speak God's word into your life. And I won't hear it because I'm so far down the route of sin. I've become blinded. My conscience has become seared. I no longer am sensitive to the things of the Lord any longer. Don't put yourself in that position. Take your sin seriously. Third point is this, is your different lifestyle will surprise people. 
Your different lifestyle will surprise people. Verse four says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Thank you, ESV, for that phrase, flood of debauchery. I'm gonna, I'm gonna remember that. Flood of debauchery. Why are others surprised when you do not join them? Why? Because it's the easy path. It's the wide road. It's where the crowd is. It's where popular opinion rests. Let's do what we feel. It's the path that agrees with your flesh. But we, we who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, we are called to live differently. To live differently. We are called to live like Jesus. When Jesus got done giving the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the people did not, the people did not come to Jesus and shake his hand and say, good talk. Got some good things in there. I got some nuggets. They were astonished. They were astonished because this man taught them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. They were astonished. This is the consistent theme in the New Testament. Jesus would teach them and people would be astonished. Now, let me just ask you this question. When's the last time, when's the last time that somebody looked at your life and said, wow, you're living like that? or they had any level of surprise at your lifestyle. What changes could you make? What actions could you take so that people would be surprised because you live differently? Matthew 5, 16, this is again the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus tells us in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your life at its root core as a Christian should be an arrow pointing to Jesus. Your words pointing to Jesus, your actions pointing to Jesus, leading other people to understand who he is. I'm gonna tell a story about myself and it's not in a good light. It's a story, it's it's a set of circumstances I wish I could repeat. Back in my time before I went into full-time ministry, I was in a taxi in Las Vegas, Nevada, the bastion of righteousness and good morals. I was in Las Vegas in a taxi cab after a long day at a trade show. I had spent my whole day on my feet and I was tired and me and my two coworkers, all of us Christians, got into a taxi cab and we were going out to dinner. This is before Uber, it's before smartphones, And so we were going out to dinner, and the economy in Las Vegas at that time was bad. It was bad. And so everybody was starving to get customers. We get in the taxi cab, and the driver asks us, where to? Now, back in those days, we didn't have Yelp. And so uh, our custom was to ask the taxi driver, where's a good place to get what? I think we wanted steak that night, right? Where's a good place to get steak? You know, so we're going to ask the locals and have them direct us to the place. So uh, where's a good place to get steak? And he suggested the following. He suggested that instead of going out right now to get steak, a better option for us would be for him to take us to the crazy horse and to see a particular dancer do her thing. Now, again, all three of us in the car, all three of us Christians, 
And not wanting to make a big deal about Jesus, we just said, no thanks, just take us to the, to the restaurant. And we did, we went to the restaurant, we didn't go to the club. But looking back on that incident, I wish that I would have said something far different. I wish I would have said something like this. Man, how much are they paying you to take us to this club? Because I, I gotta figure, the economy was so bad that the clubs were working with the taxi driver saying, hey, if you get three guys, you know, if you can load up a group of guys and get them to the club, we'll, we'll give you some cash. I wish I would have said to the guy, guy how, much, how much are you making to take us to this club? You know what? We're followers of Jesus Christ, and we respect the image bearer of this young lady so much, the, the image of God in her so much that we are not gonna look upon her in such a degrading way. And then I... I wish I would have tipped him generously for taking us out to eat and prayed with him. We need to live differently. I need to live differently. Are people surprised at how you live? Fourth, your different lifestyle will be looked down upon. Look at verse four, the last part of verse four, and they will malign you. I'm oh, sorry, and they malign you. Take your Bible again and turn to Acts chapter 16. Sorry, I got you flipping all over the place today. Acts chapter 16. And let's pick it up in verse 16. 1660, Acts chapter 16, verse 16. I'm not gonna read all the way through 34. I think sometimes we think that what is going on in our current present time, in our culture today, is new and unique and different. It is not. The stuff that we're experiencing today might have a, a different spin on it, but this stuff has been going on forever and ever. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl, this is Paul and Silas, a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and Silas, uh, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed, and can I just say that someday, if the Lord would grant it, I don't think this is ever gonna happen, but it wouldn't it be great to like work a miracle out of annoyance? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, just me being funny, sorry. But Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, the spirit of divination had departed. When they saw that it was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them into the magistrates, they said, so imagine they're taking them to the court, basically, the marketplace where the magistrates are. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave, tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You know, if you know the Bible, you know the rest of the story. But I want to focus on this part of the story. In other words, you know about the miraculous deliverance from the jail and the, the conversion of the Philippian jailer. But let's focus on this part of the story. The way of Christ 
is the narrow way. The way of Christ is counter-cultural. It's whatever direction the culture's going, we're going, when it's a biblical thing to do, it's very counter-cultural. Not only that, but we have almost all but lost our grip on reality in this culture. Let me say that again, just in case you missed it. We've all but lost our grip on reality in this culture. What these men say about Paul and Silas is propaganda. It's propaganda. These men are Jews, that's true, so they're making reference to their Jewish, their, uh, their religious background. They are disturbing our city. Uh, were they disturbing the city or was the girl crying out, these are the men of the most high God and they are gonna take you the way of salvation. Who's disturbing the city? Somebody else is, right? These men are disturbing the city and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans or to, uh, to accept or practice. It's the old version of saying, we as Americans don't believe these things anymore and we've moved past these things and, and yet these old school Christians are teaching things that are backward and out of step and not in line and on the wrong side of history. The way of Christ is counter-cultural. We've lost our grip on reality. We are living in a time of what a guy named Burn Power, I love this phrase, that's why I'm gonna use it, he says, we're living in a fictitious propaganda panorama. A fictitious propaganda panorama. We, uh, we don't understand anymore what it means in this culture. Now, I'm not talking about in the church. I'm talking about in the culture. We don't understand what it means to be a man. We don't understand what it means to be a woman. We don't understand what family is anymore or justice. We have no clue what justice is in this culture anymore. We live in a fictitious propaganda panorama. And so the things that we as Christians embrace, objective truth, right? Telling the truth. the biblical role of being a man, the biblical role of being a woman, the biblical role of a husband, the biblical role of a wife, the structure of the family, the church, the purpose of human government, all of these things that we understand so clearly and were once embraced as absolutely rock-solid truth are being swept away by ways of thinking that are grounded in emotion, into an alternative reality that cannot be challenged by reasonable people without intense conflict. Welcome to America. This situation is not new. It's as old as the Bible. Objectively speaking, Paul and Silas helped this girl out by driving out the demon. But this was viewed by her owners because she was a slave as a bad thing. They dragged them into the public square. They identified them by their religious faith. They claimed that they were creating a disturbance. They were not. And claimed that their action of driving out the demon was unlawful and they were put in prison for it. Let 
I may not have believed this when I was younger, but I believe it now, that we are gonna be called upon to be persecuted for something as simple as identifying a particular behavior as a sin. By saying that that sin, because it is objectively wrong, is destructive to ourselves and to those around us. We will suffer for that in this culture. We must know that and prepare for that. We're approaching the end. I know it's warm. Fifth, you will give an account for your life. Verse five, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I mistakenly, I apologize, my bad. I mistakenly referenced 2 Corinthians 5.10, which says uh, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This verse is speaking specifically to Christians. Yes, we Christians, we will, after death, we will... uh, give an account of our lives, but that account does not uh, change our salvation status. Not at all. There is a judgment for unbelievers that I think Peter had in mind here, something called the great white throne judgment, where unbelievers will face God's judgment and be cast into hell. Either way, we will give an account for our lives. And so if that's true, If it's true that someday you and I as believers are gonna stand before a holy God and and make an account for our lives, then let me ask you this. Why don't we prepare for that by you and I getting into accountability relationships with each other and freely confessing our sins to one another? I know, we don't wanna deal with the guilt and the shame. We don't wanna deal with the hard work of having to change, but that's why we're here. That's why we're here. And so what good would I be as a pastor, as your, as your pastor, if I didn't say, hey, let's get our acts together and let's do battle with the sin that's in our lives? It's a healing thing, right? James 5, healed. I don't think he's talking about physical healing here, right? I think he's talking about, I think he's talking about, uh, you know, being healed from the wounds of sin that's constantly reinflicting themselves into our lives, Right? The prayer of a righteous man has great power and is working. I have a friend, I don't rarely ever do this, but I have a friend uh, that I went to seminary with and he posted something on Facebook last night. I mean, what are the chances of this happening last night? He posted something on Facebook last night. I rarely look at Facebook. I rarely do, but I saw this. And, I, and I, I'm gonna put the quote up on the screen from a Facebook post, which I don't ever rarely do, uh, from my buddy Josh Nip, who says this. This is an indictment on me. Coaches of team sports understand better than today's pastors. Okay, so Josh is already, I used to sit by him in seminary, in Greek and Hebrew, next door, right here, Josh Nip. Coaches of team sports understand better than today's pastors that you must discipline your players. If one of the sixth grade boys is daydreaming, the coach says, hey, you have a job to do, do it. If only more pastors of grown men would do their jobs, the fruit in the church would be glorious. And so thanks, Josh, for uh, slapping me in the face with that one. I mean, it was a good, it's it's a sanctifying slap in the face, right? And so I, as your pastor this morning, am am just going to get real with you for just a minute. 
We gotta do battle with our sin, folks. I don't know what you think the purpose is of this whole thing that we're doing together, of gathering together and having church and, and me teaching for way too long out of an old book that's thousands of years old. I don't know what you think that we're doing here, but let me just kind of remind you of what's going on here. We, are, we were all destined to go to hell. Every single one of us, we're gonna be separated from God forever. And that's what we deserved. That's what was coming to us. And instead, what God did was so amazing, so miraculous, so loving, so merciful, so gracious that he sent his son Jesus into this world. He lived a perfect life and he was the only one eligible to give up his life to pay the penalty for everyone else's sins, yours and mine. And he did that and he executed his mission flawlessly. And what he's asking for us to do is to not just pray a sinner's prayer, but to follow the way of Jesus, to live in his teachings, to adopt his way of life. So that why? So because aren't we just going to die and go to heaven? Yeah, we're going to go to die and go to heaven. But God, in, in a way that is so crazy to me that I don't fully understand it, has configured this life in such a way that our lives influence others. Don't let anybody ever tell you the following lie. It doesn't matter what I do as long as I'm not hurting anyone else. That's a lie from the pit of hell. I influence you in everything that I do and you influence me in what you do. We're influenced by the culture and we should be influencing this culture. We gotta get rid of these excuses that we have. We gotta get into our Bible, figure out what it has to say, compare what it has to say with how we're living, and then access the tools that God has given us through the Holy Spirit, the church, one another, everything that he's given us. And we gotta get busy at Ephesians 4, putting off our old way of life, being renewed in the thinking of our mind, and walking in the newness of this new life that God has liberated us to. We gotta get after it because there's a world that's out there is dying and they're going to hell. And God in his sovereignty has allowed us to have influence and to actually lead other people into a saving relationship with him in, in mysterious ways that I don't fully understand. We go out there, we get to know people, we share the gospel with them and then God does a work. But we gotta get after it, folks. We've grown soft, we've grown psychologized. We, everything's turned into... It's not my fault. These circumstances are keeping me from doing this. These circumstances are keeping me from doing that. I'm too busy. You know, I've got gas. I don't know what the problem is. We got to stop. We got to stop and we got to get after it. We don't be gonna, we're not going to sit out in right field and pick the dandelions, okay? We're going to be ready. Well, this isn't the hard work. This is the easy part. You can hear it. Are you going to do it, right? Are we going to do it? The last point is this. The reason that Jesus came and died was to free us from sin and to allow us to live like him, all right? Verse six, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, those who died in the faith, right? That though judged in the flesh the way people are, meaning we're all going to die, they might live the way in the spirit, the way God does. In other words, as followers of Jesus Christ, you live forever. Just a couple of reminders. The way of Christ is the way of love. When we practice, for example, church discipline, Matthew 18. When I talk to other pastors and I say, and they, and they bring up church discipline, do you ever do church discipline? Yeah, we do church discipline. We don't like to do it. It's not something that we enjoy doing, but we do it. Why do we do it? We do it because we love people enough to say something. 
In other words, I, I, a, there's this big misnomer in parenting that, and I'm not, I'm not your parent, okay? Don't, I'm not trying to make, I'm, I'm using an analogy. There's this big misnomer in parenting that um, you should just give the kid whatever they want, but that kid will grow up to hate that parent. That kid will grow up to go off the reservation against that parent. What you gotta do as a parent is you gotta love them enough to say when they're going off the wrong, in the wrong way. And, and to bring discipline and, and loving discipline into their life. You don't wanna exasperate them, right? But you wanna discipline them well. And so the reason that we practice church discipline is because we love each other. We love each other enough to say, that what you did is not in the way of Christ, it's in the way of sin, and you need to turn around. And just, if you've sinned, if you've even sinned egregiously and you repent of it, you will be accepted here. Church discipline is for people who say, I know what the Bible says, but I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I bring up Hebrews 11 just one more time to, re, to bring our memory back to the, the, the path that these people followed that are in what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, often did so through great suffering. Now, I'm gonna wrap up and I'm gonna use an illustration that some of you might find offensive and I'm doing this on purpose. I am open to criticism if you think I went too far. I don't think there's anything in what I'm about to say that you wouldn't find on a very mild television show. But this is an illustration to make, I'm using this illustration to illustrate this last point. The reason Jesus came and died was to free us from sin and to allow us to live like him. This illustration comes from a, a theologian named Stephen Cole, who says this. Suppose that a husband, a woman's husband was killed in the process of trying to save her from the attack of a rapist infected with AIDS. That's a terrible premise. I'm sorry. Suppose a woman's husband was killed trying to save her from the attack of a rapist who was infected with AIDS. It would be absurd. It would be absurd for the woman after the husband's funeral to call up the rapist and say, I'll meet you at the hotel. Brothers and sisters, when we tinker with sin, this is exactly what we're doing. We're going down the road of toying with, of accepting into our life as normal, that which God has rescued us from because it was killing us. Having been rescued from that which would destroy her, why would she want to ever go back to it? So, Question on the table. How do you know that you're in the way of Christ? Here's the answer. You can be sure that you're following the way of Christ if you are in the fight against sin. If you're in the fight against sin. When I do premarital counseling, I, there are certain questions that I ask a couple. I wanna, I wanna kind of assess the situation, see how they're doing. And there are certain questions that I, that I ask knowing that this couple has engaged in, in, in certain activities. Not necessarily what maybe you're thinking, but but I don't wanna know if they're sin-free. There's no such thing as a person who's sin-free. If you say that you have no sin, the Bible says that you're a liar, First John. I'm looking for, is this couple, the man and the woman, in the fight against their sin? That's what's gonna make for a successful marriage. 
That's what's going to make for a successful life. All right, so some possible applications. I say possible because perhaps the Holy Spirit has already convicted you, has already grabbed your heart and said, this is what you need to work on. You need to do that. Then just hang with me for a minute and ignore everything I'm going to say. But if, you, if the Holy Spirit hasn't done that yet, here's a couple of questions for you. Are you in the fight against sin in your life to the point that you're willing to suffer for it? Listen, the sins that you're facing and dealing with there may be a certain set of circumstances. Maybe it's because you're tired. Maybe it's because you're hungry. Maybe it's because there's some other circumstance going on in your life that is always the trigger for that particular sin. Figure that out and figure out a way to, to not allow those sets of circumstances develop or figure out a way to bring accountability into that environment when those things happen. In other words, get after it. Let's get serious here. Let's stop making excuses. Well, I was... I'm going through a lot right now. My schedule's too busy. I just needed to have a release, blah, 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 blah. Then you're not serious. You're like me sitting in the doctor's office going, where's the pill? Where's the injection? Just fix me. Or the doctor's saying, I, I am trying to fix you. Lose some weight. <laughs> okay. This last one is just meant to inspire, Right? It's a thought experiment. What if a majority of Christians, and by majority, I'm, I'm being very, I'm thinking 51%, right? I'm not thinking 75, 80, 90, 51%. What if 51% of Christians were engaged seriously in their fight against sin? I think the world would change. I, I really, I think, I think revival would come to Delaware if that were true of the Christians. In, so let's get after it. Let's get after it. Let's not make, stop making excuses about that sin that you're just living with. Stop making excuses that it's gonna hurt if you have to go through that or this or whatever. Stop it. Let's just, let's go. Let's get out. If you need help, hey, I'm here. They, they like train me and stuff for this. There's other people in this church that have mastered the sin you're struggling with. Access those people. Let me leave you with this. Look to Christ, be captivated by his love for you. Be motivated by what he's done for you. Be motivated by the reality that you live around other people that don't yet know him. Take your sin blood seriously. Access the tools that God has given you to make changes and stop with the excuses. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. Father, I thank you for this text in Peter and I pray that we just don't hear it and then go home and forget what we look like, <laughs> but that we remember what we look like and the mess that we are and we begin to just make one, maybe two changes in our day-to-day, -to, -day, to confess our sin and to be obedient and walk in the way of your son who liberated us from this sin. In Jesus' name, amen.